Welcome to the Government Huddle with Brian Chittister, a new podcast from Government Marketing University. My entire career has been dedicated to marketing in the government space. And in the beginning, I never cared about the why. I was completely focused on the how. It was all about the tactics, the analytics, the ROI, rinse and repeat. Then I decided I wanted to understand these programs and technologies the same way our customers do. It opened up a whole new world for me. And that is what this show is about, aligning the why with the how, taking a deep dive on current trends, making bold, educated predictions about the market, learning from expert guests, and discovering innovative concepts on how to respond to all of this. So join us as we talk about all things government marketers need to know about today, tomorrow, and beyond. Come on, let's huddle up. It's hard to use modern technology when you have a policy that's a decade old. And so shortening the time, if I boiled it down to a single statement, focusing on the right priorities, so cybersecurity, modernization, workforce enablement, and then laying the foundation with data, those priorities, and then urgency around how we're attacking each one of those, but still using a risk-based framework with the agencies because they can't do everything at one time. That was Suzette Kent, now the former federal CIO for the United States government and my guest today, talking about technology priority for government agencies. This is the Government Huddle Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. And what I really love about what she's saying, especially when she speaks to urgency, is it really is the embodiment of what we've seen from her tenure as federal CIO, which is taking a private sector approach within government. Her work on key federal IT policies like Cloud Smart, federal data strategy, workforce issues, and her deep understanding of the financial challenges that come with them is going to leave a lasting impression on the federal IT community. She also has had to do something that no previous federal CIO had to do which is navigate a global pandemic, which saw an incredible acceleration of technologies procured in government. The next federal CIO will have to keep up the impressive pace of rapid IT modernization that she brought, which is not going to be a small task. Suzette, welcome to the show. And let me add my name to the long list of people who I'm sure have said thank you for the incredible job you did guiding the federal government these past few years. Well, thanks for asking me, Brian. Glad to be here. So before we dive into your time uh, in public sector, and we're going to have plenty of time to do that, I wanted to start off with something a little bit lighter. I know you're a big fan of all things LSU sports, and that's the reigning national champion, LSU Tigers. Yay, um, go to- <laughs> so having had a front row seat to the team, and especially Joe Burrow last year, Heisman winner Joe Burrow, uh, what can Bengals fans expect from him? I mean, I can talk sports all day, but uh, let's <laughs> let's just start there. Okay, okay. That's a fun way to start. And uh, I'll have to start off too with, uh, I'm jealous of the Bengals fans, but now <laughs> I'm going to be one. Um, you know, the a fantastic athletic performance goes without saying, but he is an inspiring leader and he's also a great human. And he's going to be someone really great for the whole, you know, Cincinnati community. But I'm a fan of the Tigers who are going to be on the field at LSU this year. Um, I am also, uh, when we talk about what's in store, the fact that there are 14 players that went into the draft uh, and are going to be on one of the teams is going to, I think, be uh, even more exciting watching the NFL this year. And I'm very much hoping that uh, Justin Jefferson is going to teach the Viking fans how to do that gritty dance that he did (laughs) when LSU scored. So, um, 
excited for the Bengals, excited uh, for what this year's uh, season's going to hold. And we saw some super things on the Tiger field. Now we're going to get to see him in the pros. One of those players, Thaddeus Moss, is on, uh, I guess we, we call him the Washington football team now. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the team that I'm a fan of in Washington. Uh, but he, undrafted free agent, uh, great work ethic. I'm excited to have him on the on the team. So there, there are some fantastic, uh, fun players. I'm kind of I'm excited to see Tyron Matthew and Clyde Edwards-Hilaire uh, both on the Chiefs. You know what a what a yep. cool um, history they both have, and, and for them to end up on the same team. So it, it's going to be exciting. Well, fun. Th- thanks for uh, th- thanks for having that little conversation with me. Uh, now we can jump into some of the some of the primary reasons why we have you on today. Um, and, and and I, I want to start uh, when we look back in twenty years from now, thirty years from now. I think when you look at the year twenty twenty, it's going to be headlined by the pandemic. And I know you're probably sick of talking about COVID nineteen, um, but it's just taken over headlines and. It's accelerated a lot of the adoption of technologies in private and public sector. I think I think it's kind of been one of those big catalysts. Um, but you were the CIO of the U.S. federal government during that time. What was that like? What, seeing seeing this acceleration, navigating these challenges. What what was that like during that period of time for you? Yeah, um, you know, Brian, it, it's a question that I, I, I've talked to a lot of folks about. But I'm going to kind of pull back and, and talk a little bit about the. Um, CIO mindset, you know, CIOs are always on. They're always in a production mindset. So, you know, it could be something that goes bump in the night. It could be a nefarious actor trying to hack in. You know, they're they're always um, in a position where they need to be ready to act quickly. And the, you know, COVID-19 presented that in a massive and major way. What's been really impactful about it is that it wasn't just a short-term thing. And, um, you know, the, the, in my role, one of the things that we had to do um, first was take action and listen. I, you know, pulled the CIOs together and, you know, what do you need to be able to take actions? And, you know, when we say take action, support expansive um, telework, ensure, you know, take additional uh, cybersecurity measures quickly, move some things that were, you know, digital services, a small percentage to a significantly larger percentage. That was sets of really tangible actions. How do we do that? So we started, you know, both on, you know, policy activities, um, things that we had to do with agency leaders. Some of it meant communicating information and using, you know, our channels in kind of extraordinary ways. We had great dialogues with uh, private sector vendors that that supported many of the solutions. We are having conversations about the response activities and and almost, you know, kind of putting together some of those solutions while discussions were in place. So it was a different pace. It was a faster set of communications and it was accelerating a lot of things that were already in place. And I'm a glass half full kind of person. And I hope what we get out of this is what we have seen from being successful in a more expansive telework environment. Some of the great things that came out of that very, very close partnership with vendors and agency individuals and you know some of those folks who resisted oh we can't do this this way are now saying why why didn't i do this before right i i I can 
have a good meeting, you know, using video conferencing capabilities. I can digitally sign something. Mm -hmm. It works just fine. Um, citizens kind of, we saw the uptake in digital services. So um, I hope those things we hang on and continue to drive. And you mentioned something, the ability to kind of have those virtual meetings. I think a lot of that, there was some groundwork that was laid um, obviously nobody predicted a pandemic, but a pandemic came. And I think there was a lot of work that could have been done or that was done um, to enable that. Uh, do you think maybe three or four years ago, we would have been able to pivot the same way we could um, this past spring? Absolutely not. Um, I, as a matter of fact, you know, some of the things that we track and, you know, these metrics are on performance.gov, but part of the things that were in both, you know, the, the, President's management agenda at a high level objective, but my individual plan was getting everyone to cloud email, getting collaboration tools rolled out, getting common platforms in agencies. And we measured it and reported on it. And, you know, we were in, you know, the less than half, actually 30, you know, low 30s uh, percent government, you know, mailboxes in cloud and common solutions. And what at the beginning of the administration and you know we were um every single agency had a plan and some capability when we made this pivot and overall you know we were uh close to 80 percent so we would not have you know been able to pivot without disruption right we would have done some things but we wouldn't have had we, we would have probably experienced some disruption I think the other thing is because we were introducing these capabilities, the really important thing is not just was the technology infrastructure in place, but that the members of the agencies and the business users were getting used to it. Mm -hmm. So your listeners probably know you can have all kinds of great products and technology, but if the individuals who are using it aren't on board, they're not embracing it, they don't understand it, it's not going to be of value. And, and so we had a lot of those things together. And as I mentioned, we also had a focus on digital services for citizens. We focused on a certain set and we were already working on others. So we were able to kind of pull some of those things forward and use those same protocols to get additional digital services deployed. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. The cultural aspect of digital transformation is something that gets forgotten. It's not it's not quite as cool and sexy as the technology <laughs> that you're looking at, but it is the fundamental kind of fabric of the success of whatever program you're you're unleashing. Um, mm -hmm. So so going through this, obviously, you entered as a CIO uh, a little less than three years ago. Um, you never saw a pandemic coming. What is something like this? What are some takeaways that you had from this? What has it taught you? going forward that you'll pull from this experience? Yeah. Um, so I came out of private sector, um, mm -hmm. as you talked about a little bit b before this, um, and I've had a long tenure there. So I was there in times where nationwide regulations changed. I was there when um, during, you know, 9-11 and we had transportation and logistics disruptions that were, you know, unimaginable before. Um, I watched certain technologies like image capability and mobile apps go from nothing to the primary form of business. So what I would say this did wasn't as much teach as reinforce and reinforce some of those same messages that, you know, um, level of urgency for deploying digital and mobile services 
we should have we should we should have that urgency every day right in the in the government and the pandemic kind of caused a different lens on that is not just for convenience or for personal kind of preference you know you've heard personalization and things like that but dependence on paper and person to person contact we 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 needed more you know levers there and um i think it also again reinforced and put a bright light on the need for rapidly available high quality and accessible data we are in a data driven society and individuals feel like they ought to be able to look up anything or be, figure out anything and in this particular situation there was there was a huge um demand for information so we we need to be able to move faster and the you know the last the third thing i would say in the last of these that was kind of different um in a health-based situation state and local governments have a critical role to play the federal government of course has a role but state and local do as well so um sometimes when we have emergencies that has that same interaction model but we've never had every region at the same time and so the importance of how well we can work together communicate and share information in a pandemic situation was reinforced in places where you have to be able to make you know quick quick decisions well, and I, I think all the regions were obviously in a crisis uh, posture at one time, but I think it's also an ecosystem where one is relying upon the other, which is relying upon the other. So if one goes down, it kind of all falters. So I think that's a great point. Um, and you, so you touched on data and, and you're kind of helping me move this along. Um, it, government has a lot of it, right? Yep. Um, they, they create it, they use it. Um, and one of the areas you place a lot of emphasis on is the creation of the federal data strategy. And now there's also the chief data scientist roles, which I think are, are incredibly important. Um, but I've long felt that data itself isn't useful, information is. And so what are, what's something government doing right now to turn that data into useful information, to become more data-driven or information-driven, as, as you say? Yeah. Well, Brian, you, 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 uh, you said an, an important thing is just, you know, just because I can make data available doesn't mean it's going to affect an outcome or actually do something. You know, when in, in administrations past, when they first made the commitment to make federal data available, they went out to every agencies and said three data sets. That, that was it. That was the bar. <laughs> three, make three publicly available. We have more than 300,000 on data.gov right now. And I would argue when you look at some of them, you say, what am I going to do with this, right? Um, so some of the things that we built into the federal data strategy um, were far looking and kind of North Star, but each year had an action plan that was very tactical. And that action plan seeks to, to, to kind of two sides of that data and information equation. The first is implement you know kind of the hygienes and protocols to ensure that we have quality data we have inventories we can manage the privacy um we understand the use we can share in a way that's efficient we have the technology tools in place but the other side of that is clarity around how we're going to use it and what we want to do with it and that is actually the number one first thing that was on the first year action plan was asking agencies and 
you know, and then working with their constituents to clarify what questions they want to answer. You know, sometimes somebody says, I want a whole bunch of this data, but what are you going to do with it? Right. If you're not very clear on what question you're trying to answer, what outcome you're trying to achieve, all the data in the world isn't going to make a difference. Um, but it's when you've got both sides of that equation, you know, well formed and available that you're actually going to get, you know, information that's meaningful. And, you know, it's all about outcomes. Um, the, the one other thing I'd add, you know, for your listeners, that has something to do with our skill sets too and changing skill sets. And you referenced the chief data officers definite, you know, kind of identification, the formation of the council, you know, that is part of kind of upping the focus in the discipline. And I was really happy to see that um, the uh, CIO council announced the data reskilling um, activities that are, that are actually starting. So, so that's part of it too is, changing our not just our capabilities but our culture to be data driven and to ask the question in a way that is supported by data um, not just opinion so in my role at open text we've done a lot of work with the open government partnership and part of that is uh, a lot of the regulations and and frankly just policy informing of uh, how to best use data how to make data available and as we worked with that group it, it was eye-opening to me the number of ways that data is available or the number of ways they look at making data available and the amount of innovation that comes with that in the private sector, how much private sector is really reliant upon all that data and making sure it's machine readable and um, open mm -hmm. access on, on just very easy to find platforms. Um, so it's very, it, to me, it's very cool that you put that top of mind and making all that available to drive that innovation. Um, and I do want to ask, Open Government Partnership, it's a global organization. Um, and I think there's a lot of global policies out there. So in your role as CIO, how much do you look outside of the United States for either validation or inspiration in some of the policy? Because I mean, that, that was your role was to define policy to support mm -hmm. the CIOs in these agencies. How much did global government affect that in your role? It, it, it's a good question, um, and, and I'll say it you know, this way, the, the policies and our approach is absolutely grounded on American values mm -hmm. and, um, you know, serving the American citizens. What uh, opportunities I very much valued and enjoyed was having conversations with my international, you know, counterparts, particularly those that are like-minded around democratic societies and, you know, privacy and, um, you know, respect for their citizens and goals to serve that had, you know, a digital agenda and understanding how they did certain things. Where were we very similar? Where were we very different? Um, you know, there were particular sets of countries I, I talked with very frequently. I was privileged enough to attend, you know, uh, some of the OECD discussions, you know, with, with partners. As a private sector individual, I had clients all around the globe. And so I knew, you know, the rules and regulations in many countries. I spent a lot of time, you know, when, when um, you know, Europe rolled out some of their privacy laws, and particularly <laughs> the UK kept trying to understand those impacts on business. So um, I use it as a, an important input 
And, you know, it was, I wouldn't say that it, it drove, but it was certainly um, an information uh, sharing, you know, kind of point and same thing on, on, you know, going the other way. We would sometimes talk with countries about the phases and the approach because in, in, Almost all cases, uh, you know, governments represent, whether it's a big country or small country, when they're doing anything, it represents a scale of a different size and it represents the most, serving the most diverse population. Uh, so kind of understanding some of those nuances, you know, is of value. And there are things that, I'll, I'll wrap it up this way too, there are things that the United States does, for example, NOAA data, um, mm -hmm. that is leading data in the world. And so other countries do look to the way that, you know, we do certain things um, to influence what they do. And so there's, those are also valuable kind of uh, things to understand is I, I care most about my primary audience. In the <laughs> United States, Certainly. I also want to know in places, you know, where we all care, um, you know, our, our, our ARC, our space, um, what those impacts are globally. So it, you've touched on a fair amount, especially in your role being uh, coming from private sector into public sector. Uh, it, and I think during your tender, tenure, I've seen more of, of a collaborative approach between the two than I've ever seen and all for the better, um, especially when it comes to the workforce. And uh, I, I've looked at some of, if you want to call them tours of duty, you've seen people come <laughs> from the private sector uh, much like yourself, and they bring some of that experience and wisdom into uh, into the public sector. And I think the public sector is better for it um, and, and vice versa. Um, but in your opinion, how do you see these tours of duty, quote unquote, evolving? Um, and what benefit has have these had to uh, the government workforce and just the government ecosystem? Yeah. So I'm going to make a, a personal statement first. It was an honor, you know, and, and a privilege. And, and I will say that I had, you know, maybe a mindset about what how things, you know, are inside the government until I was, you know, a member. Um, I, there are some incredibly talented people in the government IT community, and they're aspiring to do some of the exact same things that we aspired to do, we know, like when I was on the private sector side, like, like get rid of legacy IT and improve cybersecurity, mm. advanced identity protocols, balance of transparency and privacy, blah, 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 blah. Those are the same things. Um, but doing it inside the government environment is a lot harder. I compared it to, to you know, I was joking with someone saying it's like, two people were in a race and one person gets to run straight for the finish line, that's the private sector. And then for the other one, they throw out an obstacle course <laughs> over the barbed wire, over the hill. That's government. You're still getting in the same place. Um, but I, one of the things that has been very important to me and, and, and important in every single place that I have served and worked during my career is diversity of thought and getting diversity of thought at the table. And when you say tour duties, I think that is the biggest value. There's amazingly talented people, but when you have multiple perspectives and you know, I just shared in some of the roles that I, I had, I had to solve the same problem, you know, in 17 different countries and 15 different countries and in, you know, 162 currencies. Mm -hmm. That that experience you know, 
helps you kind of form um, different perspectives about, you know, how to solve certain kinds of problems and being able to draw on those experiences against, a, you know, a common problem set is hugely valuable. And, you know, I would personally challenge, you know, private sector individuals to spend some time with the tour of duty because um, I think you can ask and challenge questions and ask challenging questions and say, why can't we do this this way or what, or, or you know, this could work. And that's getting diversity of thought to the table and that's gonna benefit, you know, everyone in the long run. I also hope, um, I know it did for me, it, it makes people a lot more passionate um, about expressing their voice um, and taking an active part in our government. So, and and with these tour, tours of duty, I also think it it helps with the recruitment and the retention of some of the other employees in that ecosystem. I think for a long time, the government has struggled with the ability for them to recruit some of the best talent, uh, just because private sector becomes so competitive. But when you make these uh, these kind of doors open at various levels of of government, I think it allows uh, certain departments and organizations to recruit some of those top people, bring them in, which I think only benefits the people around them. So you're really cultivating and hopefully retaining mm -hmm. some of that talent. It's, I, I think there's, it's a multi-prong value system. It, cert it certainly is. And it's an opportunity to make an impact. Um, you know, we, when you look across all of our federal agencies, um, if somebody isn't passionate about what one of those agencies does, sure. Um, they, you know, right. They can, they, they, they can find a place. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's, um, a great, you know, indication of support and care for our nation. So during your tenure, um, you moved the industry from a number of areas, one of them cloud first to cloud smart, and you helped enable, uh, agencies to bring on some emerging tech like RPA, um, as they, as part of the PMA, that shift from the low value to high value work, which um, I know I've been incredibly focused on on the future of government work. But as you reflect back on your time, was there something that you were hoping you could get accomplished that it wasn't quite able to cross the finish line? Yeah, um, the you know when you think about technology, right? The the, the journey never ends. Mm -hmm. So. You know, I um, was very focused on getting all the barriers out of the way through policy, but also through proof points, through pilots and things like that, that, that show, um, you know, that that things can work inside the government and, and, and there is a way. Um, the things that were, were, are, you know, kind of still frustrating things mm -hmm. that I, I think we need to, to continue to fix is... Um, you know, the, the way in which we fund change is very antiquated. Um, we have a lot of technical debt, but we also have really, um, we're not just doing a, a small seat change. We have ways to, we have opportunity to rethink whole business processes. So culturally, if you don't have the business at the table with the technology teams, it doesn't matter. Um, how incredible a set of technology capabilities might be if the business you know is not going to be part of rethinking how how they do that so you know there were places where we've moved the needle and we've used technology to do that but we really haven't dug into 
should we still be doing this process this way at all? And is it still governed by, you know, a law that was passed in the 40s, 50s, 60s, before anybody even thought about, you know, the role of technology? Um, I think the other thing too is um, we, I, I would, like to see and would have uh, liked to have done more. I hope that, you know, more continues and, you know, from, uh, from the other side, you know, <laughs> I'll keep this, uh, this fire burning. Um, we have to invest in the people in alignment with the new technologies. And, and part of the reason sometimes that, you know, use cloud as a great example. It, it wasn't that people didn't want it. They didn't understand. They didn't understand. And, for the individuals, if they're in a role and they don't know how to be successful with those tools, there's going to be resistance. There's going to be a dragging of feet. There's not going to be um, the promise of the fantastic capabilities. So when we look at the new and emerging technologies, whether it's using data or some form of automation, AI, machine learning, you know, RPA, image technology, um, all those kinds of things, we have to resource it in a manner, and that means both money and people and priority that is aligned with good risk-based decisioning, which sometimes doesn't align with election cycles mm -hmm. or funding cycles in a government budget. Sure. And we also have to ensure that the investment in the people, you know, goes side by side. And, you know, I'll close with one last you know, thing. Again, private sector side, companies dedicate significant portions of their budget to continuous learning and mm -hmm. keeping their professionals at the top of their game. It's a best practice. And if we, you know, truly want our government to have um, market parity, even technology capabilities, we have to make similar investments in the workforce. I, I like that you touched on it, it kind of being an evolution and a journey. Um, so with that in mind, is there, is there a technology out there then that during your time wasn't quite ready for prime time yet, but it's something you're going to be keeping your eye on? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say it's not ready for prime time. I mentioned, you know, automated technology. So, sure. you know, AI, machine learning, RPA, image recognition, voice recognition, you know, um, interpretation. I think we're still early in the journey and much like the question of what do I want to use data for, you have to think really hard about, you know, what are the problems that are ready for the current state of the technology and where can I go? And, you know, when I look at all the ways that we can collect data now, you know, sensors, you know, video, um, all kinds of different, you know, experiences and we can collect. So, so we have these massive volumes growing data. We have companies like, you know, NVIDIA, AMD, Intel, you know, keep going that are advancing our computational capacity in unimaginable ways. And, you know, then, you know, some of the specific technologies that we mentioned, you know, they are advancing in their own right. So when you put the data, the computational capacity and the tools themselves, you know, together. Um, that really gets me excited and, yeah. and huge potential, but we also have to understand there's significant responsibility. And, you know, again, some of the, the, the things we have to make sure that while we're investing in the thing that's easy to buy, 
We're also investing in the people and the policy protocols around ensuring that we're using it in the right way. I, I think with that, I know it's been a, a common pattern in what I've been saying today, but I think that public sector, private sector collaboration, um, sometimes you don't even know what to expect because there's innovation happening at such a fast rate that if you look 10 years from now, you, you might not even know what it could look like. I kind of think about uh, when there were, were records and then everybody's innovation was, we'll just, we'll just get the smallest thing. You get it down to a compact disc and then a mini disc. No one was even thinking beyond that into, no, we're going to store all this music in a cloud and Steve Jobs is going to put it on a little MP3 player for you. It just blew everybody's mind. So I think in, in 10 years, it could be something that we don't even see coming that this this partnership and this R&D and, and all this this innovation scale is just going to change kind of how we're looking at things. Yep. Well, and Brian, you said something really important. We, we, we also have to create situations where it's okay to disrupt ourselves. It's okay. You know, you talked about, um, you, you talked about, you know, kind of music to whatever. I was having a conversation with, you know, one of the executives at Netflix and, right, they used to mail out DVDs and they got like really mm -hmm. good at that. But when they said, hey, let's not do any of that anymore. Let's do this, you know, to, to, to be able to say, okay, you know, how do, how do we go there? Um, some of the um, pillars of government, you know, ha have a little bit, you know, have more resistance to that. And, and I, uh, I had a great technology experience with one of my clients. The clients asked me, can you do this? I said, yes, we can. I'm going to ask you, should you? Should you? Should you do this? And really think about what it means to your customers and think about what it means to your, you know, reputational impacts and, and the communities in which you operate. And um, it was an interesting, you know, the dialogue after that had nothing to do with technology. And everything to do, you know, with purpose. And, and again, those those are the reasons why we have to have, you know, the the diversity of thought at the table because there's a lot we can do with technology. We have to make sure that we're making the right choices of the things that we do. I like that concept of being able to look inwards and disrupt yourself. Um, another another pattern I found if I've as I've been having these conversations with folks is just that fail fast ethic, the ability to kind of roll your sleeves up, get in there and just figure it out. You're going to fail a couple of times, but, but fail quickly and move on to the next thing. Um, and that's something I think that's been a, a new type of ethic in public sector lately is, is that fail fast mentality, or even that more so results orientation. Um, what do you attribute that to? Yeah. Um, I'm definitely going to say, you know, kind of the results orientation, but, you know, let's think about some things in, in government. If I think there was a frustration and a fatigue for some of these massive, huge projects that go on for years and years and years, and then you end up without the results that you mm -hmm. wanted. Um, and there's all kinds of reasons we could say that happened, but that's not the outcome we wanted. And to be able to know, am I on the right path? Am I going the right way? You have to construct what you're doing, what you're deploying, both you know many times into smaller pieces, but pieces that you could test. And your 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 concept, you know, fail fast, but but also if I have proven that this thing won't work and I need to do this, that's actually a good thing. 
especially in the size and scale of many of the government initiatives. And that's one of the reasons through the CIO Council that we've taken on so many projects and so many pilots is to is we put that Petri dish in the middle of all the agencies and let everybody look into it and say, does this work? Does this not? And even if, you know, all the things weren't perfect before it got broadly adopted, everyone could tweak the pieces. And I know that, you know, the council, you know, Maria Grant, Dave Shive, keep naming all the names of folks um, and the, the projects that they are taking on, you know, this year are going to continue that, that same thing. And I think that's really important because we have opportunities to buy things differently, to buy them as a service, um, you know, inside the federal government. There's also a lot of questions. Uh, so, you know, before funds are dedicated um, and you go through that whole obstacle course of government process, mm-hmm. you have to have a pretty good idea that you're, you're you know, in the ballpark. It doesn't have to, again, when you start something, doesn't you don't have to have all the answers, but you have to have enough of a grounding that you're directionally correct. I, I think so. And, and I mentioned results orientation and oftentimes someone on my side of the fence and the private sector, I think we look at government um, as kind of taking on some of the onus. But I think sometimes we in the private sector need to take on some of that onus too, especially when it comes to delivering results. It's It's kind of a partnership. It's not a here you go, figure it out. Um, and, and there's obviously a number of challenges that you're trying to solve um, in this role of CIO. In your opinion, what's the best way for people in my position, marketers, sales folks, um, people on the private sector side of the fence, um, to not only get your attention, but to help you do your job better? Yeah. So I am, I am, uh, I'm going to put on my hat from the times that I was in every one of the seats, right? I was the person building the product. I've been the person selling the product. I've been the person buying the product. <laughs> um, in, in any relationship of that type, um, first and foremost, value the relationship and think about you know the long-term, not just today's transaction. Um, and you know, is it aligned with the priorities? Is it aligned with the agenda? Am I bringing something that is going to contribute to wherever that agency, that administration, you know, in the government side, that administration, the citizens represented, like that they want to go. Um, It's not about pitching a product. It is about what outcome is this going to help me get to? And you know, if individuals can't answer that question themselves before they ever go to have a conversation, you're probably not going to have a good conversation. And, and you know, the, the, you know, individuals in the IT community are really, really busy and their resources, you know, are slim. There is not, it's taxpayer money we're spending, right? So it better be tied to an outcome. So it, it, if you can't, inherently say, I see where this fits on the agenda. I see where this is going to improve service to those citizens. I saw, you know, what they had in their strategic plan for this year. And and this is how this helps. If you can't talk about that, the, you know, the, 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 um, there's not a place to go for the next thing. 
when you can do that, that's incredibly powerful. That also tells the individual that you're talking with that you're mutually invested in the outcomes that they are trying to achieve, that you do listen and you've understood, you know, their business. And those are the kinds of partnerships that create long relationships. I think that's great insight. And I absolutely right. As we went into the pandemic and we worked with some of our government partners, but even our, our private sector customers as well, one of the biggest things that our CEO was saying is this is a moment in time that you can create customers for life. If you just don't go in there trying to sell, 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 go in trying to partner, jump into the boat with them and let's figure out how we can, how we can solve these challenges together. Um, and it's, again, I, I think if you take that approach, even when you're not in a pandemic, um, it's going to go a lot further than, like you said, just pitching a product. Oh, absolutely. And being, you know, being part of, of helping solve. I was having a conversation, you know, with one of the major vendors and said, okay, we're trying to solve for this. I, you know, this seems like it would fit. And he said, you know, let me think about it. And then he came back and said, you know, I don't think that fits. I think this other thing does. It was actually a smaller thing. It was actually a simpler thing. But that was partnership. And it was the recognition of the values at that time were quick, you know, stable, simple, something that had already been proven out in the government environment. And, you know, that was a, it was an example, you know, of, of a great dialogue there. There's no shortage of important, you know, problems to solve. So it's a, it's a good conversation. So, so as we start to wrap this up, you're just one of a handful of people that have held the role of federal CIO. Um, what advice do you have for the next federal CIO coming? And I know it hasn't been, she, he or she hasn't been named yet. Um, I'm sure you have some inklings as we all do, but um, what advice would you have for that next person uh, filling that chair? Well, um, Brian, I think it's a great way kind of to, to wrap our call is, is, you know, focus on showing results and focus on how the, the alignment of technology as an enabler of government services and agency mission. Um, you know, a lot of people's eyes glaze over if you start getting into really detailed tech stuff that, yes, you know, the IT community loves it. Um, but, but talking about the outcomes achieved are the ways that you get business buy-in, you get support from Congress, um, you, you get, you know, prioritization there. Um, but I would, and I would also tell them, uh, to, to really, um, choose the things that they focus on. And there were many people, um, you know, I, I, I don't know if it'll be any of your listeners, but I know a lot of folks would come in my office and I, I had a board up there around what the priorities were, what the legal priorities were that the office had to deliver, what the administration priorities were, um, and how, you know, and, and, and what are the policy objectives that we had. There are so many things that, that you could do. Um, but choose the ones where you can move the needle. You can, you know, create an outcome and um, that it, those things are aligned. And the, uh, the, the, the last thing that I would say is that one of the um, best parts of the role 
was working with the CIOs across all the other agencies. And, you know, I would say leverage the leaders, you know, in the community. Um, and, and even those, you know, kind of closely adjacent, there's a lot of, you know, good government kind of groups and, and folks that support the community. Um, and it's a fantastic ecosystem. And that also helps broaden the message. And just like today's show, you know, reasons that, you know, whether you, whether you call it, you know, marketing or whether, whether you call it clarifying the message, mm -hmm. talk about what the priorities are so that those who have interest can come to the table, they can help and they can contribute. If you're clear and transparent about the things that are on the agenda, it enables individuals, you know, who are interested in, in, you know, bringing something of value to find the right mark. It also motivates the individuals who, who are working already inside the government, and maybe it attracts folks who uh, aren't in the government for an opportunity to serve. You shared some really great insights with us today, Suzette. So thank you for that. Any final thoughts you want to leave our audience with today? I just appreciate them listening today. Thank you, you know, for for having me. Um, they think about, you know, what their role is, you know, in all of this. Um, getting back to that results and mission and and why, and being able to to tie that to uh, why we serve um, and what the expectations are of our citizens um, is a great way to build a relationship, and it's a great way to make individual contributions. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show today, Suzette. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, sir. And appreciate you having me today. Thanks to our guest, Suzette Kent, former federal CIO, for joining us today. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at ChittisterAB. Thanks for joining, everybody. Bye for now.